Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Passing Judgment. Former Vice President Biden, we still expect to become President Biden. We still expect Senator Kamala Harris to be the Vice President of the United States. We haven't spoken to you since their acceptance speeches. Joe Armstrong, where were you and what were you thinking when you watched? What stood out for you? Uh, the acceptance speeches for Biden, I was mostly overwhelmed by the music they used at the very end of it. Tom Petty being a favorite of mine. He played Won't Back Down. There was a Bruce Springsteen song mixed in there. It felt like a hopeful moment. Uh, like a lot of America, I spent the day jumping around wearing a tutu and a grass skirt. <laughs> and hey, with a, <laughs> just, just the change alone. You know, we've made no secret on our show about not being particularly large fans of the current president. This is a nonpartisan and statement. So, yeah, running around, uh, we went and got some lunch in a socially distanced fashion, came back just in time to see Biden's speech. You know, it felt a little bit like it's supposed to feel, which brings me to what's been happening since then, which is a lack of transition. When a new president is elected, there is a transition period. There's a transition team. There are funds that get released and that process starts. But it hasn't been that smooth this time. But I thought it might be fun, Jessica, to talk a little bit about the history of transitions. Are you ready for all this stuff? Some trivia? I am. Let's tell people, let's do what I do in class. Let's tell people what we're going to talk about this episode. First, I'm very excited for your trivia. And you know I'm not joking because I am a fool for trivia. And we're going to talk about what's happening with the lawsuits, the Department of Justice investigation. I'll use that in air quotes into voter fraud. We're going to talk about the GOP response uh, to the election results if there are any potential nightmares out there. And then we're going to end in a place that I don't typically end, which is on an optimistic and hopeful note, really telling people, I think that the transition is going to be bumpy, but okay. And with that, your trivia. Yes, and we need to teach you about teasers, Jessica. Don't blow the lead. We know what's going to Don't tell people what's going to happen at the end of our episode, but people should still tune in and hear anyway. Let's talk about these transitions. They aren't always smooth when a new president is elected. Uh, It's happened a bunch of times in our history, and let's see, this year with Joe Biden's third attempt at being uh, elected president, and this one appears to be successful, 2020 marks the 11th time in U.S. history that an incumbent president was beaten in a re-election bid. So Trump will be a single-term president, it sounds like, if everything goes the way it's supposed to go. But let's talk about historically what happened then. In 1800, remember that, Jessica? John Adams was defeated in a re-election bid by Thomas Jefferson, historical figure in our country, casts a very long shadow. But the historical record said that Adams loathed Jefferson and didn't attend Jefferson's inauguration. He instead skipped town in the middle of the night, the night before the inauguration, and was not there. So there is some precedent there. Let's say Trump skips town and doesn't show up to hand over the reins of power. It still doesn't matter. It still happens. In 1888 and 1892, something else kind of interesting happened. It was the first time the incumbent, Grover Cleveland, was defeated by Benjamin Harrison. But Cleveland ran again in four years and in 1892 retook the presidency. So that's why his name appears twice on these things. And this is a little thing we can put a pin in, as they say. Cleveland remains the only president ever to serve two non-consecutive terms, which means that our beloved Donald Trump, if he ever decides to concede to Biden, he could then decide to run again in four years or eight years should he live that long. Joseph, yes, I thought the theme of this episode was in the end, it's going to be okay. I wasn't ready for that. I knew it was coming, but I still wasn't <laughs> ready for it. Yeah, well, we got to put we got to rain somewhere in this parade. So see, that's that's the narrative arc, Jessica. We've got to pull people one way and then give them the happy news at the end. 
So, going back to this, yes. in 1932, in this particular election, the lame duck President Herbert Hoover was not fond of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the incoming president-to-be, and said that he wouldn't ever appear in a photograph with Roosevelt. But historians say that in the end, Hoover did acquiesce and rode to the inauguration in the same car with Roosevelt, shaking Roosevelt's hand when all was said and done. But right afterward, Hoover left for New York City. Their paths never crossed again. So that's a little bit interesting there. A little bit more to modern times in 1976, the bicentennial year, which some people may remember, President Gerald Ford, who lost the 1976 election to Jimmy Carter, who's still with us, Ford was finishing the disgraced Richard Nixon's post-Watergate term. The transition itself was smooth, but Gerald Ford had laryngitis when it came time to give the concession speech, and Ford's wife, Betty, gave the speech to congratulate Carter. So that's kind of interesting. So there's another precedent there that there doesn't have to be a concession speech. Jessica has mentioned that many times, that it doesn't need to happen for a peaceful transfer of power. And finally... In 1992, before Trump, George H.W. Bush was the last one-term president or the most recent one-term president to be ousted at the ballot box. Bill Clinton won that election pretty big, but Bush was magnanimous in defeat, saying, quote, I want the country to know that our entire administration will work closely with his team to ensure the smooth transition of power. There is important work to be done, and America must always come first. So we will get behind this new president and wish him well. Oh, Jessica, to have heard those things in the last several days. And, you know, what's interesting that you use this example of President George Herbert Walker Bush is that one of the things my mom keeps talking to me about is that he began a tradition of leaving a note in the Oval Office desk for the next president. And apparently he wrote a note that has become public that says to President Clinton, I'm not just rooting for you. I'm rooting for you really hard because now you're my president, too. And it's just such a stark difference, of course, between what we see now, which is I didn't lose. I'm not accepting the results. I'm going to keep fighting this in court. We're going to open an investigation. And it reminds us of a time past, a time that many of us lived through. But Oh, my goodness. I mean, I don't think that there's going to be that letter in the Oval Office desk uh, this time around. Yeah, the big question, is it the time or is it the man? And time will tell in terms of that. Now, for uh, this year, 2020, this campaign, the Biden campaign so far, full steam ahead with an official saying in an interview with CNN this week, quote, across the board, we will continue laying the foundation for the incoming Biden-Harris administration to successfully restore faith and trust in our institutions and lead the federal government. So they're going full steam ahead. Trump, not so much. Jessica, what is happening in the Trump administration? What are they doing? This is the legal part. This is where you tell us what you know. Well, (laughs) thank you. Um, Well, one thing that we wanted to mention that's strange about the transition is that Vice President Biden is saying full steam ahead, but they haven't freed up the funds for him to move full steam ahead. So Aaron Murphy, who was appointed by Donald Trump in 2017, Uh, to head the General Services Administration, has to essentially say, yes, we see, Vice President Biden, that you are going to become President Biden, and we're acknowledging that, and here are the funds for a transition. And that's actually being held up, which is, again, norm-breaking, unprecedented. You asked me about the law, so I will answer your question about the law, which is that the lawsuits are still ongoing. And 
I think for the listeners, what's important to remember is that they really fall, as far as I can see, within two flavors. And the first flavor, let's say, is the vanilla flavor, which is the lawsuits that we would see in a typical presidential election. And these are the suits that deal with more of things like requests for recount. Maybe they're not even suits, but it's the presidential legal team saying, you know what, the margin is really close. So in Wisconsin, we want a recount, or in Georgia, we want a recount. In Wisconsin, I believe we've had a recount three of the last four presidential elections, but it's not uncommon. These are the more typical lawsuits. Then, Joe, we get to the less typical lawsuits, and that's what we're seeing really a flurry of in the last about week or so. And these are the lawsuits where It's alleged, at least outside of the courtroom, there's voter fraud. There's something that's desperately wrong with the integrity of the election. We can't trust these results. We have to throw out these results. And if you'd allow me for a moment, just a a deeper dive into that second bucket, the second flavor of these lawsuits. And one thing I want people to know is that what's being said outside the courtroom doesn't always match the allegations in the courtroom. So we might hear outside in a press conference there's voter fraud, but then when lawyers actually have to file documents and sign those documents under penalty of perjury, sometimes it's not quite voter fraud that's alleged. It's something like, I didn't have meaningful access to watch the people count the ballots. Not even I didn't have access, but I didn't have meaningful access. So sometimes there's a difference between what's being said publicly and then what's being said still publicly, but inside the courtroom. And those lawsuits so far as of the time we're recording, I believe the Trump campaign is zero and 12, meaning they've lost 1210 of these particular suits. And the last thing, Joe, I want to say is that Pennsylvania is where the most legal action is. And Joe, you and I have talked a lot about Pennsylvania. There's a couple of reasons why the Pennsylvania suits and the punchline is all of these suits are not likely to affect the outcome of the election. The first is that the election isn't coming down to just Pennsylvania. And frankly, I don't think it's going to come down to just Pennsylvania and one other state. The second is that even in the suits in Pennsylvania and, let's say, one other state like Georgia, there aren't enough ballots at issue to flip the outcome of those states. And so I'm focusing on Pennsylvania because that's kind of where the most legal juice is. And There's one set of lawsuits dealing with the late-arriving ballots. Again, there are not enough late-arriving ballots to flip the election. There's another lawsuit, the 105-page filing, very recent, that talks about the fact that there were kind of two tiers of voting systems and that people who voted by mail and particularly people who voted early by mail were allowed to cure their ballots and they got kind of a preferential treatment that's unfair as opposed to the people who voted in person. That, frankly, I don't think carries a lot of legal weight and it would completely upend our system, which is to allow people different mechanisms to vote. You can pick vote by mail or you can pick to vote in person. 
Joe, I know I went on for a bit, but that's all a long way of saying I don't see any of these legal cases standing in the way of President-elect Biden becoming President Biden. But Jessica, what about the court of public opinion? My question that comes up is, are the Republicans merely trying to pose these sorts of questions about the integrity of the election and the process to get to the electors and that next process that happens in December? Isn't this sort of a Hail Mary? Are we are we concerned about the electors being faithless? Are we concerned? Like, how realistic is that? So this is the last kind of remaining election law nightmare. And I don't think it's a real one. I just want to stress that. I mean, listeners know that I'm not, I don't tend to sugarcoat these things, but the last kind of remaining, oh Lord, what's, could something strange happen is with respect to the elector. So just quickly, you know, what's the timeline here? Under federal law, December 8th is the so-called safe harbor deadline. That's the deadline by which states really need to resolve which slate of electors are they sending. Are they sending Trump-Pence or are they sending Biden-Harris, that slate of electors? Then six days later, December 14th, the Electoral College votes. Governors transmit those votes to Congress. January 6th, Congress certifies those results. And January 20th, again, we fully expect that noon Eastern time, President-elect Biden will become President Biden. Now, you asked me about, you know, this is what my friends have been asking me. This is what my neighbors from a distance have been asking me, which is, what about the electors? Could something strange happen? And yes, but I think it's very unlikely. So what would we be looking at? One is the idea that Republican state legislatures could try to uh, send their own slate of electors, that they could try and send the Trump-Pence slate, even if Trump-Pence didn't win the popular vote of that state. Add on to that a little wrinkle of what if there's a Democratic governor who says, no, I'm going to send the Biden-Harris slate. Then it's really up for Congress to resolve that. That's almost less legal and more just like raw partisan power play. And then separately, there's a question of what if electors just go rogue. I don't think that that's likely to happen in part because the majority of states have these loyalty laws where they tell electors, you can't go rogue and we'll, we'll replace you probably if you do. And the other is that electors are really party loyalists. And there's only been one elector in our nation's history that has changed and voted for the opponent, the other candidate. So I don't see these nightmares coming to fruition. I see us feeling anxious for a bit, but I don't think that there's really cause to. So 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time might be the second time in a 78-day period that I drink scotch for breakfast is what you're saying, Jessica Levinson, if things play out the way they're supposed to. And then, as we did last time, let's tape an episode because you sounded just fine last time you had scotch for breakfast. So I think that that's right. You know, usually this is just a rubber stamp, like somewhere around election night or the morning after, you know what's going to happen. And we really never talk about things like a safe harbor and when the Electoral College votes and Congress certifying and what if a state legislature decides to make a real power play and send their own slate of electors and can the governor then say, no, I'm sending my slate. None of this typically happens. And I don't expect it to happen this time. But of course, we're talking about it because 
of President Trump's reaction and, frankly, uh, the Republican reaction to to the election results. I think a funny detail in here, Jessica, is that it seems like so many Americans stop paying attention after Election Day. We go through that bloody <laughs> perpetual election, it seems like now, but back in the day, it was six months or it was a year or whatever with the primaries and the conventions and the yard signs and the stickers and the bumper stickers and the, you know, the strained relationships. But then once the election is said and done, there's a winner and people kind of go back to taking their kids to soccer practice. People go back to watching reruns of full house or whatever it is that they do to unwind at the end of the day. And uh, I don't know. It's going to be very curious to see how this, this people seem to be still paying attention right now, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But let's talk a little bit about the GOP response overall. You know, what is uh, what does Mitch McConnell have to say about this? And there are some there's been some administration officials and some other election campaign officials who've said some somewhat ominous things in the past couple of days. What is that response? Where are the Republicans on this? Great. I mean, so that the question is the answer, right? I mean, there have been some Republican elected officials and some former elected officials who have said, congratulations, President-elect Biden. And certainly a number of leaders across the world have said, congratulations, and few, uh, President-elect Biden, but not all. And so one of the ways that we can tell how bumpy this transition will be, will be in the next week, in the next two weeks, What are we going to hear from the leader of the Senate, Senator Mitch McConnell? Will he at some point say, "Okay, I don't agree with the results, but they're clear? Or will he continue to allow President Trump to, frankly, spin these falsehoods about voter fraud? And will he continue to say, you know, we we need to keep fighting, we need to keep looking into, will he support this, frankly, I think, a sham investigation by the DOJ into voter fraud, that will tell us how this is going to go. Because if the GOP establishment really starts abandoning President Trump, that's a different situation and I think a calmer situation, frankly, for the country. Now, the campaign itself is not doing anyone any favors in terms of keeping us sleeping at night. Uh, In an interview Wednesday with Fox Business News, Jenna Ellis, who is a legal advisor to the Trump campaign, said, and I quote, I know every American wants this done expeditiously, but hopefully within the next two weeks. But we'll see. Now, the big key there, but we'll see. That's uh, again, that's a three something I say a lot. But those three words are doing a lot of heavy lifting in there. And that's not the only thing that's happening. Uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said earlier in the week at the State Department itself, quote, there will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. Now, some people detected a little bit of a Mona Lisa smile, a little bit of a smirk when he said that. We can't tell if he's joking or not. And that brings me to my I guess my overall point is, do they think this is a joke? This is our government we're talking about. There are nuclear codes. There are transition norms that take place. There are things that help a new administration get up and running. So when they hit the ground on January 20th of that subsequent year, they can govern from second one, from day one. And Jessica, I guess I would feel differently about this if Ellis hadn't changed her Twitter handle to read, quote, President-elect Jenna Ellis. I don't think this is funny. I don't think these things are a joke. And I don't think, I mean, it's not that I'm a humorless guy, quite the opposite. But there are things about which you can joke and things about which you shouldn't. And uh, given the amount of other blood in the water and the other heckles that have been raised, I just wish this transition was going much more smoothly. Yeah, it's, you know, it's not a joke. And it is 
we have to think about not just the short term, which, again, is I think that President-elect Biden becomes President Biden. I think it's not quite as pretty as we would like, but and I think it's a little bumpy, but I think it happens. And then we have to think about how much this breaks norms and how we look to the rest of the world, not just the rest of the country, but the rest of the world. And look, I've said it before, but the Trump administration has really been a stress test on our Constitution, on our set of norms. And Joe, we have a lot of things to fix, and we have a lot of cracks to patch, and we're all just kind of trying to get through the next few days and then the next few weeks and then get to January 20th. But after that, there's a lot of work for us to do, and shameless plug, we have some great guests coming up to talk to us about this. We have um, Senator Barbara Boxer, we have Congressman Ted Lieu, and we have a whole host of other people. And this is an exciting moment. I mean, we really have to think about how we can try to patch up America. And one of the things that you and I have talked about, and I really think is important, is talking about disinformation and talking about a way to try and get us back to the same script. We might not all agree. We might say, I think that there's a better way to get to point B, but let's just agree that point B is on the map and that point C is fantasy land. And let's all get there peaceably. That's my big thing about this. Now, the longest contested presidential election in history, Jessica, so far, it took 35 days for Democratic candidate and former Vice President Al Gore to concede to George W. Bush in 2000. Now, there was a Supreme Court decision somewhere in there as well. But Jessica, I guess more than anything, what I would like you to do at this time is tell me that things are going to be okay. Okay, get ready for our role reversal. I really think that things are going to be fine. I really think that looking at the legal aspects, looking at the lawsuits, looking at the politics. Again, it's not going to be as smooth as we want. It's not going to be what we're used to. But I absolutely expect that there to be a President Biden, a Vice President Harris, and I absolutely expect that they're going to have their work cut out for them. And um, we all need to not just say it's okay and then stand back for two years We need to all say, it's okay, and now let's work together. And I know that that sounds so trite, but it's true. Our government is supposed to be a two-way conversation between us and our elected officials. We're not supposed to just elect the people where we say, oh, you're the right person, so I don't have to be engaged at all in my government. We're supposed to say, you're the right person for me to have a conversation with, an ongoing conversation for, you know, two, four, six, eight years. And um, I felt like I was about to do a cheerleading (laughs) cheer all of a sudden there, and I didn't mean to. But it's this is the moment where we have to say civic engagement is not just voting. And I look forward to continuing to have these conversations with you and our guests, Joe. As do I, Jessica. And that's another thing, right? We're going to have a lot of episodes going forward talking about this new administration, talking about the transition period, talking about what we do next, trying to illuminate those cracks you were talking about. But we have a country in which we can participate. That is a rare thing. It's a beautiful thing. And if we've learned anything in the past four to five years is that democracy, this republic, takes work. It takes constant work. It's like a garden. We can't take our hands off the wheel just because our person won. And I would encourage everyone... If Joe Biden does something that you don't like, write him a letter. Call the White House. Do something. Take action. The universe rewards action, Jessica. 
It absolutely does. And you know who else uh, deserves some rewards? We are recording right around Veterans Day, and we do want to thank all those people who have put their lives on the line for us. I can say personally, it's the reason that I'm here. And we owe our vets a debt of gratitude that I do not think that it's hyperbole to say that we can never repay. And I hope that this is one of the things that the Biden administration will focus on. We have to treat our vets with the respect that they deserve. Agreed, Jessica. And thanks, everyone, for listening. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay.